Oh my God, I'm chilling. What happened? Oh my God. Oh, I just can't. What? Patrons, Lindy, Stella, Wacy, Krista, Emily, Whitney, Rachel, Crystal, Cash, Nicole, and Mary. Welcome. Thank you for joining. There is oh. your shout out. Top of the episode. I mean, really diving in. There you so, go. Right in. Uh, this is the Thursday before Christmas. Therefore, it's a Christmas episode. And by that, I mean, um, it happened around Christmas time. It has nothing to do with like a, you know, saying yeah. a serial killer or anything. It just. Sure, sure. Today, I am telling you about Stephen Morin, as well as a lot of other people, but we'll get into it. Great. Sources, heavily Vanity Fair. You know how those articles go. Vanity Fair by Julie Miller. Julie, you rocked it. <laughs> uh, UPI.com and a little bit from a book called Signs of a Serial Killer uh, by Sarah Pison. Love a Vanity Fair article. Ooh. Oh my gosh, they are so detail-oriented. Although... <laughs> I feel that they got one name wrong in here, but whatever. I'll, I'll let it slide because if you're writing a 100-page article, one one typo in a name or one wrong name, I'll, uh, I'll let it slide. You did a great job, Julie. <laughs> no, discredited. Julie, you say? Cancel. You're done. You'll never work in this town again. You're done. On December 11th, 1981, Margie Palm was out Christmas shopping in San Antonio, Texas, when a man approached her and forced her in the car by gunpoint. She doesn't know this at the time, but he also had three knives on him. Just like FYI. He threatened to kill her if she didn't behave, saying, what's one more damn bitch at this point? And Margie shook with fear, which seemed to have turned him on. Ew. Ew. <sighs> this seems to be about some, something else. Who hurt you? Well, you'll, that will become even more of a question in the next couple of paragraphs because it's what was me he noticed the christmas presents in the back and he started reaching back there and started throwing throwing them around and shaking them up and mumbled to himself why he never got gifts like that as a child there it there is there it is because santa saw Yikes. early on that you're a piece of shit <laughs> anyway santa hated you he called Sad. her a shelter princess and said the animals were treated better than he was growing up oh man and all Margie managed to say was, I'm sorry. She closed her eyes to calm herself and started to pray out loud. And I will say he does, he had a terrible childhood. We'll get into all of that, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that. So I don't seem the woe is me comment is a little insensitive because he did have a bad childhood, but a lot of people did and they don't do the things he did. It's not Margie's fault, but it's it is Margie's sad. Fault. No one should have a bad childhood. No. Duh. She closed her eyes to calm herself and started praying out loud. And he rolled his eyes and he called her a re religious freak. So she pulled out her notebook of scripture and this very much caught him off guard. So she used it to her advantage and started to feel as though a greater force was actually guiding her. And she did something she had never done before and admittedly knows it sounds bizarre to most people. She took her hands and placed them on his forehead and attempted to cast out the evil, just yelling at the spirits to get out. She yelled, oh. you will not keep destroying his life and mine. Get out of my car now. I'm like, 
he's the evil in your car, but whatever. Whoa. So they're not driving. They're just yeah, sitting they're driving. in the car. No, oh, they driving. are driving. He's she, driving. It, he's She's driving. in the pastor, passenger seat. Okay. And he actually forced her to sit on her hands, but seeing that pulling out a scripture book yeah. really caught him off guard and he didn't shoot her for pulling her hands out. She went with, She just went with it. Yeah. And placed her hands on his forehead, everything. Ooh. She's just really leaning into this, quote, religious freak that he thinks she is. And it seemed to work because he said he didn't want to hurt her, but he doesn't know how he can ever let her go. He then starts going through the, her cassette tapes, looking for music, and sees it's all religious-based music. And before you ask, it's 1981. <laughs> just, yeah. just about. 1981. I was like, I know it's December 11th, but uh -huh. that last part, I can't that remember. last year is tricky and me saying cassette tapes really piqued your question. Yep. Threw me for a loop. Yep. It's all religious-based music and he tells her it's shit until he gets to one and says, if this is what I think it is, you are one fucking cool lady. And he popped Whoa. it in. And sure enough, it's Christopher Cross's debut single, Ride Like the Wind, which a apparently banger. is his jam. Banger. Banger. Okay. I've, ne I've never heard of it. I, listen I downloaded it. I listened to it. Never heard of it. And according to Vanity Fair, Christopher Cross never gained the notoriety. So I gather it's pretty unusual, pretty crazy that she has this cassette in her car. Oh, well, he's about to have a spike of downloads. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he's going to hit the charts this uh -huh. week. And this guy is living for it. He plays it over and over. Several hours into the abduction, he pulls over to a 7-Eleven and made Margie go inside to get him a newspaper, cigs, and beer. And when she grabbed the paper, she saw the headline on the front page read, Accused Killer of 30 Women Murders in San Antonio. Big search underway or something like that. And that's when uh -oh. it hits her. She is in the car with this guy. <gasps> I guess true crime wasn't her thing because she had never heard of a mass murderer or serial killer. Before you asked, the term serial killer was coined in 1974. And this is, again, 1981. Okay. Okay. Have you ever heard of Stephen Warren? No. I almost feel irresponsible for not knowing him. He's believed to be responsible for at least 40 murders of women and seven men between 1969 and 1981. I heard someone or read someone that someone referred to him as the forgotten serial killer. And I think it's because he and Ted Bundy I was overlapped. About to say, and yeah. I think Bundy got all the attention. And actually the, the few survivors of Stephen Moran say that they think some of the victims Ted Bundy got quote credit for were really Stephen because they have very similar MOs. Okay. So a little bit, pause on Margie. She's in the 7-Eleven, shitting her pants probably. Yeah. A little background on Stephen Warren. Stephen was born in Providence and spent his teen years in Florida. After a stay in a juvenile detention center and multiple car thefts, he was briefly placed in the state-run Florida School for Boys. Have you heard of this? No. Well, Why would I have heard of it? Because I think I heard a podcast on it or I heard a podcast on one of these horrific schools years ago, but it's a reform school that's notorious for awful conditions, uh, understaffed and overcrowded facilities, boys being chained to walls, beatings, <gasps> abuse, some oh. instances, death. Jeez. There were reports of kids being in isolation for weeks at a time, like a real piece of shit establishment. It's awful. And his parents sent him off here? Yeah. Sad. 
and it was operating from 1900 to 2011. Whoa. It only closed down in 2011. Where is it? Uh, Mariana, Florida. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's small town, Florida. Yeah. In 2013, they discovered 55 graves on the property. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. At age 14, Stephen actually made headlines for his escape from the school. He stole his father's car, who was visiting him at the time, and he ended up wrecking three vehicles before he was caught. He was taken to a hospital with injuries, escaped the hospital, led the local sheriff's department on a 100 miles per hour car chase, and was caught again. That same year, having already stolen more than 20 cars, Stephen tried, was tried as an adult and sentenced to time in Florida State Prison, Whoa. which again is where Ted Bundy was. Fun fact. Yeah. Stephen blamed his behavior on his mother for sending him to that boys' school. Honestly, I do too I mean, a little bit. And the 55 graves they found, that makes me so sad because clearly those parents just like dropped him off and bye-bye. No visits, no nothing. And right. didn't inquire... Set. That's really effed up. I know. Uh, he also blamed her for allegedly allegedly witnessing his mom sexually abuse his brother and her supposed relationship with a friend his age. He's 14. Uh-uh. So gross. 14? Yeah. No, yeah. ma'am. And being sent to prison at 15 years old where he said he was sodomized regularly. So I tied. bet he... 15 and he, that's when he was tried as an adult. Yeah. Oh God. Tough, tough life. So, uh-uh. yeah, he moved to San Francisco and in 1976, after marrying his first wife, Stephen lured his sister's 14 year old friend back to his apartment by telling her that his sister needed her help. Once she was there, Stephen gagged her and sexually tortured her for six hours while the TV blared. She said Stephen tied her hands behind her back and gagged her and then cut off her sweater and tried to force her into a pair of shorts that were too small. And when he saw that they wouldn't fit, he said he was going to cut her skin to make them fit. He did. It was just a threat, but it was just how scary to hear that as a 14-year-old being held hostage. My God. Yeah. He also tied her bound body to ropes that were attached to hooks in the ceiling and left her suspended like that for over an hour. We've had a few stories, mainly Conley, uh, Colleen Stan, of people yeah. hanging their victims from the ceiling by their wrists. And God, just can't. That sound, that is torture. Yeah. You're dead weight. It's so all scary. At the, yeah. It's dead weight. It would hurt so bad. Yeah. The experience was so horrific that in an interview nearly 50 years later, she remembers wondering at the time if she could get enough momentum to swing herself through the second floor window to a more humane death. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Before fleeing town, Stephen allowed her to leave with bruises covering her body and face, as well as trauma that manifested throughout her life by way of drug addiction. So sad. That's really sad. I know. Lasting effects for that poor, poor girl. Mm -hmm. With a warrant now out for Stephen's arrest in San Francisco and an FBI file devoted to him, Stephen moved to Las Vegas, where he had a new alias, got a new job, a new wife, and leaned into murder. Wife, you said? Yes, I said new wife. His MO was to hunt attractive white women, mostly in their teens and 20s, tie them up, torture them, and kill them, then steal their cars, IDs, whatever possessions they had, 
and discard their bodies in desert, shallow, shallow graves, or motel rooms. By the time authorities found the victims, Stephen would be hunting a new woman in a new location using a new alias. Yes, Good question. Lord. Okay, so when he moved to Las Vegas is when he escalated into murder. He let the girl, the 14-year-old girl in San Francisco go. Yeah. That's how I was going to say, like, how'd she get out of that? Okay. Yeah, with Ooh. a crippling drug addiction that will yeah. affect her in the, for the rest of her life. But yes. Right. Yeah, he let her go. Las Vegas is what really started his murder spree. Mm-hmm. Even as Stephen and his second wife celebrated the birth of their son, he kidnapped 18-year-old Susan Belote. Susan actually went missing the same day Stephen's wife went into labor. So that's haunting. Yeah. That same year, a 19-year-old woman named Cheryl Daniel met a guy named Andrew and started dating him, I think, for a couple months. Her friend and coworker, Sarah, remembers meeting him but said he was a starer. Like, he just stared Mm -hmm. a lot, creeped her out. Yeah. One day, Cheryl came into work hysterical, and Sarah asked what was wrong, and she said she found out Andrew was married, so she dumped him. Then Cheryl went missing. No one knows where she is. There's no evidence of foul play. She just disappeared. She was a manager at a gas station, and being her coworker, Sarah, her friend, actually takes over as manager, because at this point, they don't know anything about Cheryl's disappearance. For all they know, she ran away. Yeah. So Sarah is now the manager, and is... And as manager, they give her this beeper that you can leave voicemails on. It's weird. Okay. And it's mainly for her boss or employees to get a hold of her if it's an emergency. Uh, But she starts getting harassing voicemails on it from a voice she does not recognize. Scariest shit ones, too. Like, she would be getting out of the shower, and she would all of a sudden hear the voicemail from a man she doesn't know say, you look good in a towel. Oh. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. And when she would turn off her lights to go to bed, she would get another one that says, I can't see you, bitch. Things like that. Oh, my God. Chilling. Ew. Oh, God. I've really got chills. I can't imagine. I know. And sometimes he would leave them. He would leave them all the time. But sometimes it wouldn't even be his voice. It would just be women being tortured. Uh -uh. Sounded like whimpering women. And then he'd hear she'd hear beatings and the, the whimpers turned into screams and then silence. It's crazy. God. And and then he would say shit like, leave your door unlocked so I can come in and F you, and then I'm going to cut you up. Jesus. And then the next day, she would get berated for her door being locked. Good God. So creepy. And I know, it's like, call the police. She convinced herself it was all a prank because there were a few times it would, she would hear like, I see you're watching TV while she was at the grocery store. So she kind of convinced herself Like, oh, these might be for someone else and they just have the wrong number. And she even told her boss, like, I'm getting pranks on this thing. And he he told her that no one had had that number before she did. No one had the beeper before she did. It's brand new. So this did scare her, but she didn't think the cops could do anything because he never followed through with any of these promises. He never actually hurt her. And especially back then, she's probably right. They probably wouldn't have done anything. Yeah, there's no, like, IP address. Right. Figuring it out. And this is... At this point, either 1979 or 1980. Yeah. While she was working at the gas station, a man named Robert came in regularly. He was very nice to her. Nothing notable. Then he asked her out, but she had a boyfriend, so she said no. But she did find him charming and attractive, but she knew nothing about him except that he drove a mint green blazer. Her boyfriend ended up taking a job in another city, so they did break up. And she finally accepted a date with Robert and gave him her address 
But later that night, she got a very weird feeling that she could not explain, and she stood him up. The next day at work, he came in and went on a rampage, screaming at her, calling her a bitch, knocking shit over. It was so terrifying that her coworker who witnessed it quit because she was oh. so traumatized. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, then her feeling was probably right because exactly. that is an insane reaction. Right. After this incident, Sarah moved because this Robert psycho knew where she lived now, and she found a duplex in a different part of town. She enlisted her friend Sally's help to move things, and when they got there, Sally walked into the duplex first, froze, turned around, and whispered to Sarah to run to the car. (gasps) When they got there, Sally told Sarah she saw a man hiding behind the door. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. Uh-huh. Before the technology that we have today, the amount of time you would have to devote to this much stalking, like, she got a duplex... How did, how did you find out where it was? Like, right. you, do you have a job, Robert or Stephen? Right. And oh, I, she doesn't specifically state what floor she was on, but she does say that she would open her curtains to see if the next building over, there was a man looking at her. Like, I get the impression she's not on the ground level. So she's yeah. like, how is he seeing me in my apartment? She was looking on rooftops of other buildings. Like, is there a guy with the binoculars? How... It makes no sense. He's just following her wherever she goes. Right. What time do you have to devote to this? This is insane. Right. And that's, again, while she kind of convinced herself as a prank, because she's like, there's not, I mean, I'm on the ground level. It sounded like he would have to really scale a building. I don't know what, I couldn't find what floor she was on, but she'd made note, like, was he in my apartment the whole time? Because I would close my curtains and he would know that I was in the shower and there's whatever. Oh, my God. So they called Sarah and Sally called the police who questioned neighbors and they said they did see a man in a green blazer go into <gasps> Sarah's house. Oh my God. So clearly Robert. this Robert guy followed her to her new house and now knows where she lives again. She stays with her parents during this. So don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Fast forward six months. They find Cheryl Daniels body. Uh, again, this is Sarah's friend and former manager. Mm-hmm. And next to her body was a wallet that was dropped by the murderer. The license confirmed it was Stephen Morin, Morin, duh. But even more creepy, there was also a piece of paper in his wallet with Sarah's name and address on it. Police called Sarah and told her to drop everything and come to the station where they showed her several pictures of men, like 14 or or 15 pictures. Mm -hmm. She pointed out one and said, that's Cheryl's ex-boyfriend, Andrew, and then pointed to another one and said, that's Robert, the psycho who's been stalking me. And police tell her, no, all of these men are Stephen Morin. What? That's right. Cheryl's ex-boyfriend, Andrew. Sarah had met Andrew before. And when he reinvented himself as Robert, she didn't even notice it was the same person. That's how good he was at changing his appearance. Oh, she my God. 15 pictures of the same guy and said, I know two of them. That's Andrew. That's Robert. No, they were all him. He could change his race if he wanted to. He was so good at it. Wait, that was my initial thought when she met, quote unquote, Robert was like same person. And I was like, oh no, she met Sarah's ex-boyfriend. Right. So like She knows what he looks like. Yes, she Holy did. Holy shit. That's how good he was. So as I said, she was staying with her parents in Arizona. And when she got back to her duplex to grab her shit, they found evidence that he had been sleeping in her bed. What? the hell 
he was just waiting for her day after day. Like he wanted, he really wanted her. Whoa. A whole new meaning to the one who got away. He has a wife and kids. Yes. What do you do? How are you getting away with this? Oh, he's abandoned them. Oh, okay. His sadistic desires trump his wife and kids. Loyalty to a wife and kids. Oh, okay. I was like, where are they? And is he coming home? And she's like, why is your hair platinum blonde? Like, what right. are you doing? Right. Where have you been all day? Where'd you <laughs> right. sleep last night? You just mm-hmm. squatting in someone's apartment? Right. Weird. So somehow she manages to get away from him again, and this time it's for good. But to this day, she is never without a gun. She even had a 45 sitting next to her during the interview with Vanity Fair. Really? Yep. And she later wrote a book called Signs of a Serial Killer. This is the Sarah Pison I've sourced at the top of the Oh, episode. okay. Mm-hmm. Sarah, go girl. Mm-hmm. Whoa. And by the way, there are several stories like this. I can't get into all the victims we think he did. I mean, he's believed to have killed 30 to 40 women, like I said. Um, I am just talking about ones that are confirmed his. Yeah. In early 1981, he had been arrested and brought into police custody twice under different aliases. One was in Pleasanton, California, for false imprisonment and brandishing a weapon. And the second one was in Buffalo, New York, for loitering with the purpose of engaging in deviant sexual act. I really don't know the details behind either of those. But in Pleasanton, Stephen made bail and disappeared before authorities could determine who he really was. And in Buffalo, he was fingerprinted and spent the night in a cell. But since the alias he was using had almost no criminal record, authorities didn't rush fingerprint analysis and they let him out before getting the results. Oh, God. What an oversight. I know. They just gave him a trial date and sent him on his way, which um, he was like, sure, sure. I'll be back for the trial date. No problem. You'll see me there. See you real soon. On November 6, 1981, he picked up a 23-year-old teacher, Sheila Whalen, at a random pit stop in Colorado using the name Rich Clark. He strangled her, checked into a motel, laid her naked body on the bed, and spent the night with her. Her body was found the next day, but he had already fled. So, clearly, he has a knack for evading authorities, but in those early hours of December 11th, 1981, the same day he kidnapped Margie, Stephen made a mistake. While pulling a gun on 21-year-old named Carrie Scott in a parking lot in San Antonio, her friend suddenly appeared. Stephen was caught off guard, so he shot both women. Carrie Scott died, but her friend survived, and a bystander saw it all happen and took down Stephen's license plate number. And hours later, the police tracked him to a seedy motel where he was holding another girl hostage. Good Lord. He abducted Pamela Jackson 11 days before this from an apartment complex in Corpus Christi, Texas, while she was picking up her son. God, he's all over the place. I know. She was blonde, and he made her dye her hair brown, and he sexually tortured her multiple times a day. God only knows how long he was planning to hold her there, but thanks to that bystander who got the license plate number, cops were on him. But they weren't quiet enough about it because he pulled into the... When they pulled into the parking lot, he looked out the window and saw them. So he jumped out of the bathroom window and managed to escape before the SWAT team busted in. He was gone, but they did manage to free Pamela. Oh, good. Like, knowing this guy's a flight risk, wouldn't you come and unmark cars? Or at the very least, 
come in a marked car, but go around back first. Let's surround the place yeah. before you pull into the front. He just merely jumped out a back window. Like, let's think it through a little let's bit. Think it through. We jumped out of the back window to nothing, to woods. I'm like, you can jump out the back window, but it's going to have 75 guys with guns pointed yeah. at it. Like, didn't you see it coming? Whatever. Mm. So he flees, and that's when he finds poor Margie Palm. Margie was everything Stephen hated. First off, she's a woman. But on sure. top of that, she came from a wealthy family. I think she was even wearing a Rolex at the time of her abduction, which she tucked into her sleeve. Uh, she grew up in El Paso and was the granddaughter of Thomas Moore Mayfield, a pioneer, a pioneer builder and developer who, quote, twice lost and rebuilt his fortune in the construction business, according wow. to his obituary. Mm. Her family was regularly featured in the society column and as a teenager, Margie was a debutante and a homecoming duchess, not Stephen Moran's vibe. No. So here we are at 7-Eleven, and she now realizes this is the man she's with, a very dangerous and sadistic serial killer, a real holy shit moment. She thinks about telling the clerk, who is also a woman, but they are okay. the only two people in there, and he is watching her like a hawk through the window. She was scared that even the most subtle way of saying it or even a glance at him from the clerk, let alone her picking up the phone, that he would catch on and kill them both. So she says nothing and walks out. That clerk out. really has a gun behind the counter. I know, but you, you never know. Uh, even if Margie says, like, starts it with, okay, do not look outside. Your actually your uh, yeah, is just to look like, outside. Why? And grab it. And who knows where the gun is? It could be in the back and a set. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. I'm not. So she says me. nothing and walks out, likely saving that clerk's life. Oh, yeah. Outside the 7-Eleven, he forces her into a phone booth, gun pressing into her, and made her call her husband to say everything's fine. She told her husband, Bart, that she was going to knock out more Christmas shopping and asked that he bathe the kids, feed them, and put them to bed. She had never oh. asked him to do that before. She shouldn't have to, but whatever. I mean, <laughs> he's like, I have to do what now? Yeah. Men be worthless. <laughs> he's like, okay, you're going to have to walk me through right. every step of this. But because she had never asked him to do that before, he's a little sus. Oh, yeah. Then he saw the 10 o'clock news about how Stephen Moran was on the run in San Antonio, and he calls the cops immediately. So I think Bart wow. had heard of this guy before. Bart. I know. Meanwhile, in the car, hours go by, and Stephen starts opening up to Margie about how he abandoned his son and he hates himself for it and how God would never forgive him, and she tells him that's not true. And she says, think about it. If your son committed the same kind of crimes you did, do you think you could forgive him? Trying to convey that, like, God loves you no matter what, and it clicks for him, and he says, lady... You've been preaching to me all day, and I finally get it. And then he starts praying out loud. He asks oh for gosh. forgiveness and says he wants to go to heaven. Then he pulls over at a rest stop, opens his revolver, and pours all the bullets into Margie's purse and says, I'll never kill again. What? <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, my God. She then tells him about a televangelist based out of Fort Worth, and he decides he wants to go meet him. At this point, they're in Carryville, Texas, which is about 65 miles outside of San Antonio, and he goes to a bus station. She buys him a bus ticket to Fort Worth, and he asks if she'll come with him. 
No. But she reminds them, no, it's Christmas and I have two kids at home. So she's got to get back. But thanks. This has been wonderful. This has been lovely, but I've really got to get going to call the police. Yeah. He says he understands, then asks for permission to hug her. Oh, God. Need I remind you, he had just that day killed someone. He has been torturing people for years and years. It's shocking. So skeptical. She gave him a hug. Oh, oh we'll God. get into it. And gives him her notebook of scripture and waits with him until the bus comes. And when it arrives, he gets on and he waves to her with a huge smile on his face as if he was a kid on the way to summer camp, as Vanity Fair says. I mean, what? How insane is this? And Margie's just standing there like, is this really happening? Cannot believe it. She gets back in her car, locks the doors and bursts into tears. Oh my gosh, she rocked it. She rocked it. When she gets home, Bart and the police are there and she gets out of the car and says she needs a drink and a cop yells for someone to get her a drink. Oh, girl. Bart make it makes, a stiffy. <laughs> make it a good one. Bart made her martini. They get in the back of the cop car and went to the police station so she could tell her story glass and hand. Oh my God, I'm obsessed with her. Isn't this great? When they get there, they show her about 15 or 20 different men they're all Steven. They then showed her crime scene photos to show her what he is capable of, and she immediately gets sick. Well, and what good is this? Well, no, yeah. What good is this going to do? Right. She doesn't need to see it. She escaped him. Like, what, do you want to see what could have been the case? Well, you, you see, see what could have happened to you? She, did, she felt that this whole time she had been duped. It was all an act, and now she's terrified that if he ever found out that she told them where she, where he was, oh, yeah. he would come back and kill her. So she initially tells them she dropped him back off at the Kmart where, where she was pulled, where she was kidnapped. Oh, and God. they're skeptical because he's very smart and outwitted police for years. And they really didn't see that he would go back to the scene of the crime. Yeah. So I think they're showing her to be like, are you, in yeah, case you're uh, lying, okay. look at what he's been doing. Yeah. Don't lie uh, to this guy. I see. But, she says, no, I dropped him back off at Kmart, and that's it. Oh, gosh. And, of course, they rush to Kmart, and he's not there. So it's a little, okay, Margie, come on. Don't be intimidated. Just break down. Have another martini. Oh, yeah. When Margie and Bart got home, she does break down and told him the truth, and he made the phone call to the cops explaining everything and that she lied. Then he called a local FBI agent and told them that if he was actually going to Fort Worth, the bus would be in Austin by now. The agent told Bart he appreciated the information, but highly doubts that Stephen would actually be in the Austin bus station saying, we've been after this guy for years. He doesn't do anything stupid. He won't be there. Why would being at the Austin bus station be stupid? Because they think like he took Margie's Fort Worth bus ticket, got on the bus and immediately stopped and got off and fled again. He's uh, not going uh, to Fort Worth. He's not actually following through with the route. Mm -mm. There's no way. I see. Okay, right. go on. But he dispatched police there anyway, just in case. And sure enough, there he is sitting in the terminal reading Margie's notebook of scripture. Wow. This has been years. He didn't even resist arrest. His gun wasn't loaded. So, I mean, <laughs> what's he going to yeah. do at this point? But it's a Christmas miracle. I mean, a real 180. Real 180. Uh, well, iffy. I don't think so. I think uh, it was all an act. Well, years of that 
just undone by one conversation. Mm-hmm. That's I what mean, I said. Over a dec- decade of these disgusting and sadistic desires are all washed by one, I believe, eight-hour abduction, one out, eight-hour conversation. Yeah. I just don't know. Well, cl- well, he was under some sort of calm spell by this by Margie. So, like, great. Yeah, she did it. She he probably it. would have snapped out of it eventually, but they got him, so that's good. Yeah. His first capital murder trial was for Carrie Scott's murder, the girl he shot in the parking lot before abducting Margie. And it was fast-tracked to April of 1982 in Beaumont, Texas. And while the district attorney was reading the indictment, he interrupted and announced, before the jury and before God, I plead guilty. Oh. When they asked if he understood that the charge would either result in life in prison or a death penalty, he said, the only plea bargaining I've done, Your Honor, is with my Lord. And this was the defense's main argument, that he had found God and his conversion could be educational to others. After hearing from some of Stephen's survivors, the jury deliberated for just over two hours, and he was found guilty, and he received the death penalty. <laughs> I was about to say, Texas. They don't care. They're like, we don't give a shit. Like, sure, sure. His second trial was for 21-year-old Jana Bruce. She was abducted from a Hilton Inn parking lot where she worked, and she was found the next day floating in two feet of water and had been strangled. Oh, my and God. And this trial, the judge allowed him to question the jury something he requested. Don't know why. But this is where I'm like, you and Ted Bundy really are like, whatever. Steven got to? Yes. One question he asked was, do you believe that a person, despite of what that individual's past has been, no matter how bad it was, can be sincere and changing? The answer was clearly no, because he too was found guilty and sentenced to death. Oh my God. They're like, do you know where you are? Right. Two weeks after this death sentence, which was still April 1982, he wrote the judge and asked to set the execution date because, quote, I've been prepared to meet my maker from the time I was blessed enough to meet Miss Palm. Whoa. That was less than six months ago. You know that, right? Like, tone it down a little bit. No, I'm proud of Margie. Good for her. I mean, Margie rocked it, but I'm like, okay, Stephen. In 1984, Stephen was extradited to Golden, Colorado, where he stood trial for the 1981 murder of Sheila Whalen. Though Stephen already faced two death sentences in Texas, they said he was such a clear threat as a repeat murderer and rapist that the state of Colorado decided to prosecute him in case his sentences in Texas were someday overturned. Yeah. During his trials, one judge was so wary of him, he kept a loaded 357 magnum under his bench. This is how dangerous he is. Wait, this is, whoa. There are deputies in there. There are plenty of guns in there. The judge and the felt, and the clear sight. There, I mean, I know, but the like, judge not felt safer packing heat himself. Whoa! Most thought this con man was trying to pull the ultimate con, pretending yeah. to be super religious to get his death sentence overturned. For real, this was more evident when a deputy found a pair of shoes having fifty dollars, razor blades, a list of name and addresses, and a fake Texas license. Oh, never mind. There you have what? it. There you have Where it. Where were they hiding? In his cell, I think. Oh, good Lord. The DA in Colorado tried to negoti- negotiate with them to find his other victims he's tied to, but he refused to talk. Wait a minute. <laughs> I thought he was a changed man. I know. So much refused- for ridding your sons. That's fine. 
And Did he have anything to say about those tennis shoes? He's going to no. run into the arms of the Lord. He <laughs> <laughs> was like, I'm just, that's not what you think. I'll tell you what it is. I have to put them on to run faster, jump higher into the arms, arms of our up. Lord and Savior. <laughs> Oh my so God, kindly was... give those back. <laughs> That's a good one. I also owe him a 50 for letting me in. And for a third time, he was found guilty and given a death sentence. I'm so glad right. no one's fallen for this con. Once he was on death row in Texas, he called and wrote Margie at least once a week. Oh, he God. even apologized to Bart and wrote him saying that he hopes he hasn't come in between him and his wife. Oh, my God. Like, and even tried to turn Bart onto religion. Like, back off and calm down. I'm good. I didn't murder and rape tens of <laughs> dozens of women. So I'm I'm actually fine. Thank this you, though. Is bizarre. I'm certainly not going to some, let some serial killer preach to me. Yeah. Fuck you. Margie believes he has changed, but no other survivor thinks he had. Uh, the 14-year-old he tortured way back in 1976 believes that this quote, Christian version of him was just another alias. Yeah. Vanity Fair included some excerpts of the letters he wrote to Margie. And the lack of accountability is shocking. Like one's reflecting on his marriages and says, I don't feel bitter towards my, any of my wives as I'm sure I was a big part of things going bad. Uh, uh, well, you were the only part of things going bad. Right. Yeah. I'm sure your craving for rape and murder caused quite the strain. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But no, don't blame yourself. It takes two to end a marriage. Sure. <laughs> sure. My ass. You kidnapped and murdered someone on your son's birthday. The birth of your son, his very first one. Yeah. I can't believe I've never heard of this dude. I know. I feel irresponsible because I bet our listeners are like, what? Or I bet some are. <laughs> yeah, for sure. He also played with the idea of writing a book or movie and even told Margie, that the hypothetical profits would go 20% to himself, 10% to Copeland Ministries, and 5% to his son. Okay. <laughs> Five, I'm like, excuse me. I, that adds up to 35. So I don't get it. <laughs> so who gets the rest? I know. I was like, well, I'm the math whiz, but that adds up to 35. So I don't get it. Maybe. How much was going to Copeland Ministries? Yeah, because I wasn't. Ten. Oh, wow. 20% to himself, 10% to Copeland Ministries, and 5% to his son. And the rest, no, but it doesn't matter because that's never happening. It's never happening. Not making a movie, certainly not a profitable one. Right. We're not just, doing that. Just sit there and think about what you've done. Right. Your son doesn't need your 5% of $10. Thank you. Of $0, actually, because it's not happening. Right. March 13th, 1985 was his execution date. As he's walking to his death chamber, he jokingly asked, does anyone want to go fishing instead? Which is pretty awkward. Are you serious? I'll give it to him. That oh, was wow. pretty good. He's... He was strapped to a gurney and put to death by lethal injection at 1244 a.m. His final words were, Lord Jesus, I commit my soul to you. I praise you. I thank you. Ooh. Margie went to, to the prison to visit him the day before. He apologized for kidnapping her, then said, but not really because you changed my life. That right there to me. I'm like, me, me, me. But not really. But not oh really because you changed my life. I'm like, She's well, like, well, 
wait till you hear what I've been through. Right. What about the trauma I had to endure for eight hours? Get out of here. So that is the story. And I'll tell you, the brief story of Stephen Warren, there's, again, tip of the iceberg, because he's responsible for 30 to 40 women. Oh, God. And seven men, which is insane. Really? Yeah. But he can't, they can't tie him to him, so they can't, he's believed to be, Yeah. never, he's believed to be responsible for that. He never owned up to that. Right. Wow. What do I know? But maybe eight hours of kidnapping unraveled a decade, over a decade of truly dark desires, but I seriously doubt it. I really do. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I don't think so either. And that is when he was caught Christmas. Wow. I forgot that you were doing one around this time of year. Um, wow. Have y'all heard of that? I haven't. It's because I'm the worst. Crazy. He's the worst, really. Uh, Margie's daughter grew up to be a psychologist. I would be like, can I, I'm going to need yeah. mom. I'm going to need you to sit right here for every oh, week man. for the rest of our lives. Cause I need to really dig in here. Wow. Yeah. Easy. Good for her. She is a, oh, she rocked it. She rocked it. And you know, great job. She's a very religious woman and that really saved her. Good for her. Good girl. Thanks everyone. Thanks everyone. You're the best. People are the worst. worst. Bye. Deuces.